Good morning. Did anybody tell you where I was at? Okay. And we don't, where's the stool that's supposed to be up here? I might want to sit down today. There's a stool over here. I'll get to that. Woo! Um, so, yeah, friends, it's not my intention to uh, run a race on a Sunday morning. Well, ride a race on a Sunday morning before I have to preach, but uh, they changed it on us at the last minute. This is the Cornhusker State Games, you might know, and oh, well, that's me. <laughs> Less than an hour ago, uh, I got off my bike less than 40 minutes ago. I mean, I crossed the finish line, pulled the thing off, slapped Richard on the back, said, go get him, buddy. I chatted with Andrea while I was stuffing myself, stuffing the bag, and off I went. Uh, I thought about riding all the way to church, but I decided my bicycle might, or my car might get here sooner. So there we are. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll get the uh, results. Maybe they'll text them to Chris or to me to find out how we did. Um, uh, Two years ago, we got first place in our age division, which is called 99 plus because you take the age of all three people on the team, and if it adds up to more than 99, you're in 99 plus. Um, Last year, we finished not in the medals because more people uh, uh, competed, but one way or the other, we had a good time. So uh, last year, we started at 738. Um, 738 allowed me enough time to, you know, watch Richard run, all of us kind of visit a little bit, you know, get the free stuff they get you at the finish line, uh, and then come back, and I borrowed Richard and Jessica's house, which is right across the street there, and took a shower, and then came and preached, and I missed like one song last year, you know, but this year, um, Andrea didn't get in the water till 837, and I'm going, whoo, whoo, she says to me as she hands me the chip, pedal fast, preacher man. I did, uh, as fast as I could around Holmes Lake, uh, 20 point something miles an hour. Um, And I'm going to ask you to pray for a friend of mine. He's a fellow believer in Jesus, Dr. Wade Fornander. He's my family practice physician. He had a wreck right in front of me. Um, And uh, just coming along, you know the roads in Lincoln. And as you're on, uh, I guess it's um, normal there, approaching 70th, and you get the turn lane to go south, there's a crack in the pavement that's, I don't know, 50, 60 feet long between the two segments of pavement. He caught his tires in that and flipped his bicycle and ended up um, like laying on the curb. I locked up my brakes um, and stopped to check on him. And he was going, go, go. But he's holding his arm like this. I'm going, Dr. Fornander, do you have a broken arm or something? He says, don't worry about me. Just go, just go. And then I looked and I saw the emergency services people on the corner were running that way. And he said, I'll be all right. You guys go run your race. So um, don't know what happened to Dr. Fornander, but he's a good Christian man, a good doctor as well. And um, I want to pray for him. But more than that, we want to pray um, for God's presence here this morning. I said, isn't it interesting as I'm standing visiting with Richard and Andrea on a Sunday in which I'm going to do something I, I prefer not to do, miss singing and miss being here ahead of time. And something that some people might say, oh, the preacher's not there for the whole time and want to gossip about it, that I'm preaching about unity. <laughs> I thought about, you know, uh, well, Richard said, well, you know, you could really get them and just preach in your kit. I said, no, no. <laughs> I would never live that down and my daughter would be embarrassed and never want to come back to church. 
And Andrea said, well, you could preach in your track suit. I said, if I don't have enough time to change clothes, I'll put on my track suit. You know, so at least, uh, you know, and I said, now the good news is I preach up here and they're down there so they don't have to smell me. Please know I did brush my teeth and put on deodorant and freshened up a little bit. So y'all stay back there. I'll stay up here. We'll be good. (laughs) So Titus 2, 1 through 15. If you haven't opened your Bibles there already, would you please do so? Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, our key text this morning. You know, if I can, I like to preach a message from one text and illustrate from others. Expository preaching, it's called. It's where we look word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, and say, okay, God, what is it that you have for us to learn here? And so we want to do that this morning. Uh, We may not go too deep, but the implications will be deep. And so um, if you're able to stand with me, I'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of reading God's word. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, Try to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify for us a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Let's pray together. Father, it's our privilege to come before you this morning and have the freedom to worship and to be able to sing praises to you, give our tithes and offerings to you, offer prayers to you, and certainly to study your word passed down through the ages, left as a guide for us. And it's our prayer as we consider this passage of scripture that you wrote to a young pastor so many years ago that we would learn from it even this morning. Speak to us by your spirit, Father. 
course, we pray, Father, if there's anyone here who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that they would understand that this morning and make that commitment. God, we have to confess that we're not perfect. Far from it. And that we need you. And it is not for us to become judgmental or legalistic. But we pray that because we are recipients of your mercy and grace, we would show that same mercy and grace to one another and to other believers of all churches everywhere. God, I certainly pray for my friend and brother, Dr. Fornander, whatever his wreck was, maybe it's just scratches, but certainly, God, that he'd heal up and all those out there competing even still. But thank you most of all for my brothers and sister present with us now. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So friends, when we consider the spiritual health of a church, there's two parts to that. We've got to consider both the spiritual maturity of individual believers and the composition and function of the church body as a whole. Because it all works together. We, in some ways, are an organization, yet because we are the body of Christ, we are an organism. A living temple for God's Holy Spirit. And so we have to consider how each part is healthy. Just as if your body was healthy for the most part, but you had a sick kidney. And if you had a kidney that wasn't functioning properly, you'd go to the doctor with a fancy name that can help you fix your kidney. Maybe with some medicines, some surgeries, some procedures, heaven knows what they might prescribe. But what you would find out, of course, is if your kidney is not functioning properly, it's going to affect other parts of your body, isn't it? Things won't work right when one part is not doing its job. The same is true with the body of Christ. And isn't it interesting that the body is an illustration that the same Apostle Paul that wrote Titus here uses of the church in other epistles. That he calls the church a body. Most particularly, we think about 1 Corinthians 12. You can write that down on your outline. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, I'll refer to it later. You will see this analogy of the church as a body. And so, there has to be some care of all the parts for the other parts to keep them healthy. Because if your kidney is not healthy, it's going to affect other parts of your body. If your heart is not healthy... Well, it could affect other parts of your body, and depending on how unhealthy it is, you could even die. Your brain, any part of your body, they all are valuable, and they all are needed. So be it with the church. In our sermon series here, Church 101, we've addressed so far authority. That our authority ultimately comes from God the Father, Jesus His Son, the Bible, and then pastors and deacons in the church as a whole. We talked the next week about leadership and how God had ordained both pastors and deacons to provide leadership for the church in different types of roles, but we focused our discussion on the character of those men, not so much on the performance of those men. 
We talked last week about membership. And again, we didn't talk so much about the how-tos of membership, but about the fact that we are called to love and care for one another, to demonstrate love and compassion for one another, and to be there when our friends need it. And so now we turn to unity. Unity. And so we ask a question to begin with, and that is, how should I interact as a church member? Verses 1 through 10 tell us that. How should I interact as a church member? I would imagine that you, if I were to ask you, have a few stories of misbehaving church members. Anybody here have a story? I'm not going to ask you to tell it out loud, but misbehaving... Oh, are you the misbehaving member or you got a couple stories, Tom? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. All of us have probably been there before as the misbehaving member. Um, certainly, if you've been around a church long enough, you've seen misbehaving members. And I use that term uh, cordially. But I mean folks that are doing things that are maybe not even sinful, but they're certainly... Um, unkind and probably hurtful or unwise. But then again, you have the folks that are sinful, whether uh, they don't know it's a sin and they're just, you know, ignorant of that, or whether they're maliciously trying to do something to hurt you. And so we don't want to be mean here this morning. We don't want to name names. We don't want to be unkind, inconsiderate, or rude uh, and share those stories with the people next to us, you know, um, because then that would be gossip, and then we might be sinning even if we didn't name names, right? But we ask that question of how should we interact as a church member, and we think most often of those negative and ugly experiences. I'll never forget my first Sunday at my church in Texas that I pastored before coming here. You know, we had a traditional single aisle sanctuary with the pews on either side and, you know, the podium. And I was finished preaching my sermon and did the gospel invitation and all that sort of stuff. And I closed my Bible and I was walking this way. And just like our church, um, the piano was on the right side. And the pianist lady who was a known leader of the church, her family was kind of the core of that church, comes down from the piano with an ugly look on her face. And she says to me, that sermon was too long. I thought, wow, it's going to be really nice to be your pastor. (laughs) Melanie and I pretty quickly figured out that that church had five ladies that were going to be an issue. And you didn't have to talk to anybody or hear any gossip from the past to realize that they had been issues in the past. Number one, they wore it on their faces. Number two, they said it straight to you. And number three, they would... When I say they said it straight to you, I mean they would tell you stories of how they were, you know, unkind to other pastors or other church members or ran people out. Like like badges of honor. And I thought, Lord Jesus, what's it going to take for this little church who split three years ago in order to become a healthy church? And I very quickly began to think, God, you're going to have to change their hearts or they're going to need to leave the church or this church doesn't have a chance. Within six months, one of those ladies got mad at me about something and decided to leave the church. That was one. Within nine months, a second lady got mad, left the church. That was two. 
And then it took a little while longer, but it was about three and a half year mark. The third lady, who hadn't been coming for a while, but still been nasty with her gossip, decided to leave the church. That was three. About the third year mark, God spoke to me and said, Aaron, I want you to leave. And I was like, I'm not ready to leave yet. Things are finally going well. Our church was growing. The community was growing. I was looking forward that that might be the church I'd spend my entire career. That's my heartbeat. Y'all are stuck with me now. (laughs) But finally, about year four, I said, okay, God, I'll go. Got together a resume and started the process of interviewing here, there, and wherever that landed me here almost 12 years ago. On the Sunday I announced my resignation, the last two ladies joined another church across town. I wish I could tell you that that church is all better now. But unfortunately, even though those ladies left, that church didn't get to the health that we would hope that it would have. That body of Christ was damaged. And so when we consider who we are as a body of Christ, and come back to your scripture now, if you would with me, in Titus chapter 2, you see the instruction of Paul, the mentor in the ministry, the missionary church planter, to his uh, younger son in the ministry. He calls Timothy his son, but he has great love and affection for Titus as well. You see that. And he tells them, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. I think that's important. I mean, that's not a point on your outline, friends. But don't you normally put important things first, right? And I know the chapters and the verses were put in later. And, uh, you know, Titus or Paul didn't write it and say, here's chapter 2. But I would say they did wisely here because this starts a new thought. And he's telling them. Make sure that your doctrine is sound, that you know the Bible and you teach it well. Now, from that foundation, look at where he goes. Verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and in endurance. Then he says in verse 3, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but teach them uh, what is good. Then they can teach the younger women to love their husbands and their children, be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to respect their husbands so that no one malign the word of God. And then he gets to young men in verse 6. So your first sub-point there is old and young. Old and young. Members of a church, we should see old and young members in a church. And we should have interaction between old and young members in our church. Our church, to a certain extent, is still what people that study it would say is a family church. It's not till you get past the 250 up to 300 or 400 uh, range that we become what is called a community church. Now, we're a bit of an anomaly because we're Southern Baptists in a place without too many Southern Baptists. So we are a bit of a regional community church. We have people coming from 30 miles all around because we're Southern Baptists. We preach the Bible. We give gospel invitations. The sort of things we do that make us unique from other churches in our neighborhood. But at the same point, you know, if you've been here a while, we have a couple families in our church that the grandparents are here, the parents are here, the children are here, the grandchildren are here. 
And it's an amazing, wonderful thing for us to be blessed by with these families that live out for us. Here's the way you do it. Now, I know that's not everybody's privilege because maybe your family's in another state and a job moved you here or something like that. and You can't do that. But we can make that family in our church. You can get in relationship with people a generation older or just a little older, a generation younger or just a little younger. And you can live out what Paul says here. Now, he's instructing Titus to teach older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. I'm the pastor, yes, but I'm just, can we say I'm middle-aged? I mean, I'm balding, thinning. I kind of got helmet head right now. But there's still a large number of men in our church that are older than me. And I hope they know and the experience from me that I always try to treat them with respect. And as my elder, and I always try to honor them because I believe they do that. And I don't give advice to older men that often. I do try to ask questions. And try to point them the right direction. And if they ask my advice, I'll give it. So maybe our church is healthier than the church that Titus was a pastor of. And Paul needed to be a little more straightforward in his instruction. Notice verse 3. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live. Not slanders or addicted to much wine. So you can drink wine, but you shouldn't be addicted to it. Not too much. And to teach what is good. And then he gives a role for the younger women. The younger women then are to teach, or excuse me, the older women are to teach the younger women. I love the fact that not only do we have Sunday school classes that are multi-generational, but then we have Bible studies. That lady's Tuesday morning Bible study that I see because it's here and my wife facilitates it. And to hear the stories of all the different ages of ladies that come. I know the ladies' Thursday evening Bible study uh, that meets every other Thursday evening. Was it first and third, Silvana? Um, uh, you know, to hear those stories of the richness of those relationships and how ladies love, mentor, and encourage one another. And I would challenge you, ladies, if you need that kind of relationship, that might be the place you could start. If you're not available on Tuesday morning or Thursday evening, we'll talk to me and we'll find you somebody you can meet one-on-one with or we'll start another time. You need to be in relationship with other folks who can challenge you and encourage you and teach you. Notice verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Before you... Get all uppity on the young man and say, ha ha, those young men need to be self-controlled. Look back up at verse 2 and notice that Paul said the older men needed to be self-controlled as well, right? In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So he's telling Paul, here's the way you set an example for the younger men in particular. And then you get the so that. You know I love the so that. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they can have nothing bad to say about us. I think that's a collective you, a plural you, that he's talking about all the young men in the church and all the people maybe even in the church, no matter their age, that because of the way we live, people see a difference in us. And because of the way we interact with one another as old and young members of a church, people say, yeah, this is attractive. When I visit prospects, 
homes, folks that are not members of the church yet, and forgive me if this term prospect sounds too commercial or whatever, but um, one thing they say to me consistently is, Pastor, I love the way that your church has people from all generations. And I, if you're a parent of a young child and you're thinking, oh, my young child interrupts worship and makes noise sometime, let me tell you, I consistently hear from folks of older generations, and I love that you have children in worship. And it's not a distraction when they make noise. It's music to my ears, and it is mine too. I don't make a big deal out of it, and it's not that I'm ignoring on purpose, but I know if I were to look at somebody whose child is crying, all of you would look at them, so I just don't, right? And we're a church full of families and a church full of all generations, and it's a lovely thing. This idea of old and young. My first six years as your pastor, I only officiated the funerals of five church members. What a blessing to have a church that has people of all ages and isn't full of elderly people that you're officiating a funeral once a month, once a month. I have a friend like that in Texas. He does a funeral a month of a church member. His church isn't much bigger than ours. You have to wonder about that kind of church. It's a blessing for us to be here, friends, all ages. 1.2 on your outline. You probably figure this one out as men and women. Men and women. Our church is full of men and women. And there is diversity and difference in the fact that we are men and women. We have different roles assigned to us by the Bible. We have different uh, abilities, different uh, everything. And we're made to complement one another. You know, there's this theory when I preached the sermon series on the role of women in the church that you heard the term complementarianism. And I believe that because I see that, that God made us in our differences to fill in each other's gaps, to complement one another, not to compete with one another. And to see that in our church family, we complement one another. That folks with different giftedness, with different genders, do different things, but we all work together for the same goal. I love when I see a program like Awana. And you've got a wonderful, able leader in Sandy Hansen who gives her heart and her life to this program. But then there are people of all different ages and both genders, of course, that serve and want to make it happen. She works hard, but she can't do everything. How many Awana volunteers do we generally have, Sandy? Like 30. 30 different people from teenagers to great-grandparents, probably. I love this day of resurrection. Silvana, what do we have? Like a couple hundred roles in this day of resurrection. Some people have, you know, multiple roles. And again, led by an amazingly talented lady. But then you look at our deacon ministry. Ryan Cole's our deacon chair. A younger man is the chair of our deacons now, and I think it's brilliant. Ryan is gifted and called, and you've got a dozen men who love one another and love our church and will serve you as needed. We all work together. Let's go on to verse 9. Now, this one gets a little touchy for us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them. And not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. We don't have slaves in modern day America. Some of you may feel like it, depending on the way your boss treats you. I hope not. But we can translate that, you know, into our understanding of how we work for our employer. Whether it's a family owned business or whether it's a corporation. 
that the way we live our lives and the way we conduct ourselves at work is an example to others. And that's the 1.3 on your outline there is slave and master. That there are folks that do own businesses. There are folks that are in charge, um, you know, if you're a supervisor at work. And the way you live your life is a testament to Jesus. And in our church family, we have folks that fit all those categories as well. You know, we're not a uh, super wealthy church, and that's great. I love the fact that we have folks of all different socioeconomics. But we do have a few folks here that own their own businesses, and we do have a few folks here that are management level and those sort of things. And we need to be considered of how we do that. Notice again that you have the so that in the end of verse 10. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The way you live your life demonstrates the reality of Christ. You might need to write that one down. The way I live my life demonstrates the reality of Christ. And think about the fact that if you live a hypocritical, sinful life, what reality you're demonstrating. Or if you live a humble, wise, gentle, honest, loving, courteous, kind, respectful life. It demonstrates the reality of Christ. That transitions us to our second point. And that's how should I behave as a Christ follower? So Paul just lays out for Timothy in verses 1 through 10. It, here's the type of folks you got in your church. And this is healthy and this is good to have uh, older and younger men and women, slaves and masters. All those folks mixed together in a church. Last night, we got to go to a Sunday school party, uh, Brother Don Moody's Sunday school class, and it was out at the Hansons' house, and there was a great group of folks there of all different ages and all different backgrounds, and we had a wonderful time. Uh, I don't know about, you know, um, well, some of the things that happened at our table last night need to stay at our table, right, Don? What happens at the table stays at the table. No, no, nothing bad. We just had a couple little jokes that we'll keep between us in the stories we told But to see that happen is a wonderful thing. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So again, you get this summary statement of here's what I'm building everything else to follow on. Verse 1, it was teach in accord to sound doctrine. But in verse 11, the transition of this passage is the grace of God has appeared to all men. So every person... Everywhere has that ability. You go back to Romans chapter 1. We call it general revelation. That because of creation, anybody from any culture should be able to say, you know, this didn't just happen on its own. I know they teach that theory called evolution. But there's got to be some intelligence to this design here. And, and then seek the one true God. And so that grace has appeared to all men. And certainly through the form of Jesus. And through you, the church. And what does it do? Verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Everybody say no. No. Oh, that was not too enthusiastic. Everybody say no. No. Thank you. To ungodliness and worldly passions. I don't need to ask you how easy it is for you to be tempted. And I don't need to ask you to testify what your greatest temptation is. Because the people that know you probably know what that is. Maybe they don't. Maybe you've got it hidden well, you think. But all of us struggle with temptations 
and sinfulness, ungodliness and worldly passions. But it's the grace of God that helps us deal with those things. Amen. And we're to live self-controlled. There it is again. Upright. That means righteous, respectable. Godly lives in this present age. We know that someday we'll go to heaven. But in this day, in the midst of the ungodliness, in the midst of a world that's in turmoil, with all the stuff that's going on that you don't like and that you wish you could change, when people that don't think or act like you want them to, you've got to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen while we wait? 2.1 on your outline says we are to live godly. You should live a godly life. Your life should be different enough in your behavior and speech that people should not ask you, do you go to church as if, hmm, you're not acting like you go to church. They should say, where do you go to church? They should see that you're a believer in Jesus. They should hear that you're a believer in Jesus. You should be the person that puts in the extra effort at work. You should be the person that seeks to heal a relationship around you. You should be the person that seeks to demonstrate love to those around you and gives grace like you've received grace so that people will see the difference in you. 2.2 says that we are to live expectantly. Live expectantly. I know for boys and girls, that's kind of a big, long word. I try to use shorter words since we have people of all ages taking notes in here. But expectantly. Think about it, boys and girls. You know what expectantly is. Because you, when it's time for your birthday, or when it's time for Christmas, or when it's time to go on vacation, or to have a play date with a friend, or for your grandparents who live out of town to come, you know what expectation is, don't you, boys and girls? And as adults, we do too. Maybe adults, we know it more, right? Work is hard and you can't wait for vacation to get here. You can't wait for retirement to get here. You can't wait to your friend to come and visit with you and be refreshed by the time together. They live in expectation. Verse 13 said, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One bad thing about that triathlon, um, being on a team, was uh, I wasn't warmed up. Your bike has to go in this corral thing, and you're not allowed to mess with it. So if you, you know, uh, doing it all by yourself, which is hard, and those people have my respect, you know, you go out and swim in the lake for a half mile. And so even though swimming, you're more using your arms, you're still getting your core warmed up, your legs are kind of going and everything, and then you run, go jump on your bike, and go ride your bike for 12 miles, and then you go run 3.1 miles, that sprint distance triathlon. Woo, those people, it's crazy. But for me, Andrea went and did the swim, and I'm just standing there. I'm going, oh, this is going to hurt. And so I'm stretching, doing some stretches, and I start, you know, running in place and all kinds of stuff like that. And I'm kind of this, that, and the other. And some of the other pilks are just standing there looking at me like, you yahoo. This is your first time. And I'm thinking, this is going to hurt. You might be out for a Sunday morning ride, but I'm going to try my best. And I'm going to push hard because I want to do better than last year. And besides, if I don't, Andrea is going to look at me funny. She is a mother of four children. Have you seen that look she can give? 
Yeah, yeah, she got those mama eyes. Dave, where are you? Is Dave in here somewhere? Dave knows that, her husband. I mean, yeah, if you're a husband, you've got the look from your wife, right? So I was going to go out there and put it down as hard as I could. But I tell you what, by the end of that second lap, oh, my legs were crying at me. I come by him there, and Andrea's clapping, go, Aaron, go! And all I could say was, this hurts. I was ready to be done. I wished I was turning off, going down to get off that bike, but I had four more miles to go because my legs weren't warmed up as I'd like them to be, and I was pushing as hard as these skinny little legs could go. And on I went, turning myself inside out because I knew four more miles, 12 more minutes, maybe 11 if I go really fast, I can get this done. And I did. How many of us look forward to heaven that way? That we're spending ourselves so much as a believer in Jesus that we're just tired out. You catch a little recovery on the downhill on the bike, kind of catch your breath a little bit because you pushed hard up the, uh, uh, going up the hill, and you catch your breath, but you know I'm not there yet. You know i got to keep pedaling. How many of you live your life in Jesus that way, that you spend yourselves on behalf of others, that you live an otherish life that is God-powered, other-focused, and self-sacrificing? Go get it, friends. Live expectantly. 2.3 on your outline is to live powerfully. It says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where I get that idea powerfully from. He's not just any God with a little g. He's not just a sort of Savior. He is the Savior with a capital S. Jesus Christ, go on verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. He told us to live godly, and then he tells us that Jesus is helping us to live godly, that he purifies us, that he empowers us, that it is his work in us. Have you ever thought the Christian life is too hard? Maybe you're trying too hard. Maybe it's because you are trying too hard. Maybe you need to surrender more and try less. Verse 15. In summary, Paul says, These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Look down on you. Live your life in such a way that people can respect and honor you. Go back to the description of an elder that's in Titus chapter 1. That's what the book starts with. We talked about that last week. Or two weeks ago, excuse me. And then you'll be able to preach with authority. Question number three on your outline, and don't put up your outlines yet. Write me an answer, please. How should I adjust to God's Word? Given what you've heard this morning from Scripture and from this preacher, what should you do differently, and how are you going to do it? 
Do not sit here and listen to the scripture that talks to us about how we need to be unified and how we need to live like Jesus and go, oh, that was a great sermon. Pastor Aaron went and rode his bike this morning and came to church. Woohoo! That is not what you should remember about this. You need to remember what God's word says. You need to remember what the Holy Spirit said to your spirit about the fact that you need to get over yourself and be more courteous to that friend in your Sunday school class. That you uh, ought to take the initiative, even though you're naturally a little bit shy, and ask somebody else who you can also tell is shy, and maybe they're struggling, and the Holy Spirit's given you the discernment to see that. Ask them if you can share coffee or lunch this week. Maybe you need to take the initiative and say, you know, God's given me the gift of hospitality. I'm going to invite that family over to our house. Yes, our house isn't perfect, but that's okay. They don't care about our house. We want to love them in Jesus' name. What is it that you need to do differently? At the end of the sermon here, I try to stand right there because, you know, most folks head out that way if they're going out the door. So I try to catch some hands if I can, right? Greet people. Tell them thanks for coming. Ask them how they're doing, that sort of thing. Well, my church in Texas is a little bit easier. And I have this picture in my mind. And this literally did happen to me at my church in Texas. This is not a joke. It is a joke, but it actually happened. So we have a little small foyer. And I'm standing there with my Bible like this, greeting the people as they come by, giving some hugs and those sort of things, looking them in the eye. And one lady had the nerve to say to me one Sunday, That sermon was perfect, Brother Aaron. For my neighbor next door. I said, well, great. How about you? She looked at me funny and kept walking. (laughs) Thank you. How many of us are like that? You hear a sermon like this and you say, that sermon was perfect for the guy that sits over there in my Sunday school class. And certainly for that yahoo on the back row, John Duncan back there. I see him. You took up a new spot, John. What's up with that? Who's, who's in John's regular spot? Rich? Sue? I want to see, I want to see, I want to see an arm wrestling competition for that spot. Right here, let's get it going, let's get it going on, damn. But we're really good at applying our sermons to other people. Friends, I want to ask you, when you think about the unity of our church, apply it to yourself, and then seek to extend grace and love others with the same grace and love you've received. Let's pray together. God, our thank, we thank you for the blessing of our church family. We thank you that we can laugh together. We thank you for a church that has all ages and leaders of both genders and has folks that are employees and owners and managers all together. And here we are with all our different backgrounds and you've called us together. Our prayer is that you would help us learn better to be together the body of Christ, to love one another. So God, we come before you with humility and we say we can't do this on our own. You've got to help us get over our own sinfulness. You've got to help us have the grace and the mercy to get over the sinfulness of others and not be judgmental about them. God, let us love others like you love them. Let us grow in unity as a church. 
We certainly pray, God, if there's anyone here that needs to unite with this church family, that even today they'd say, this is the sort of church I need to belong to. They'd walk down this aisle and they'd tell us and we could all celebrate together. We certainly ask God if there's anyone here who knows their own sinfulness and knows that they need to repent and turn from their sins and trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that they'd come down the aisle and talk to me about that and they could do it right now. God, we thank you for the many blessings you give us. We pray now that you inhabit the praises of these songs we sing. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen.